listening to the Miracle Word Podcast. We believe that the Word of God gives you the power to experience never-ending increase in every area. If you're ready for revelation that will take you to the next level, you're in the right place. Here's your host, evangelist, author, and founder of Miracle Word University, Ted Shuttlesworth Jr. Hey, what's up, everybody? Welcome back to the podcast again today. I am ready to go. Got myself a Snickers bar, just crushed it in a Diet Coke. I'm just kidding. Obviously, if you listen to the episode entitled Five Areas of Your Life That You Must Master, you'll know I'm talking about the temple principle. I didn't break it. I'm good. I actually got myself an Atkins nut roll chocolate and caramel bar. Keto life. Hashtag keto life. I'm not actually doing keto, but I still like the bars. Anyway, ready to go. By the way, it wasn't a Diet Coke. It was a LaCroix. Don't send me any stupid messages about the pesticides. Don't want to hear it. Anyway, welcome back. (laughs) Welcome back to the podcast again this week. Got some great stuff for you today, as you saw in the title. We're getting ready to jump right in. Seven deadly beliefs that are killing your Christianity. Seven deadly beliefs that are killing your Christianity. We're going to jump into this in just a second. I've heard all seven of these at church. And from the mouths of Christians, it's insane. This is stuff that should never, ever be believed by any child of God. It's very dangerous, deadly. It'll kill you, cause you to suffer throughout your life on the earth for God. So we got to get these out of the way. Let me say before we jump in that we have Worship Summit 2019 coming up in May. If you guys haven't registered for this yet and people are already registering, I want you to go to southeastworship.com, check it out, look at all of the frequently asked questions. If you have questions, they're answered right on the website. We'd like you to be a part of it. May the 7th through the 10th, 2019. We just started it this year and I'm telling you, It was a blast. I'm so excited about what's happening. God spoke to me directly and said, it's time to raise up a new generation of worship leaders and praisers. And uh, no matter if you're, doesn't matter what role you play in worship, whether you're a singer, band member, choir member, sound team, tech team, lighting, whatever, you might just be a believer that wants to go deeper into the study of worship and praise. This is for you. So southeastworship.com, check it out. It's free to register. 18 absolutely free sessions, as well as live concert on Friday night. We're recording a live album. It's going to be killer. I'd love to have you guys there. And then also, don't forget, the new book is getting ready to come out further, faster. How impartation allows you to leapfrog past the normal. I've got the first chapter that I want to give you for free. It's in the description. Go click the link after it's over. Download a free copy of the first chapter. All right, let's jump in today. Seven deadly beliefs that are killing your Christianity. It is about three in the morning where I'm at. And uh, I got a a dentist appointment in about five hours. Literally five hours from right now when I'm talking to you, I have a dentist appointment. My least favorite place to be in the entire world world, the dentist's office. I would rather spend a day in a Turkish prison than the dentist's office. I don't know if that's exactly true, but it's close. It's close to true. 
I don't know. I'm weighing it. I'm weighing it out in my mind. All right. Seven deadly beliefs that are killing your Christianity. Let's go. Number one, the first one, and this is huge right now. First deadly belief. Here it is. Grace means my sins no longer matter. That's deadly belief. Number one, grace means my sins no longer matter. With the way that grace is being preached throughout this nation and other nations, they would have you believe that once you get saved, your actions no longer have any bearing on your eternity or on your future. And it's a very, very dangerous thought. And it's not right. It's not scriptural. You look through the New Testament for yourself. It's very interesting that after people were saved and even filled with the Holy Spirit, their choices very clearly mattered. Look at just something like Ananias and Sapphira in the book of Acts, who lied to the Holy Spirit about how much money they were giving to the church. The Bible doesn't say that they were rebuked or reprimanded. It says that they were killed by the Spirit of God. They were literally killed instantly for lying to the Holy Spirit. Where was the quote-unquote grace on that one? You look at Simon the sorcerer in Acts chapter 8. The Bible says he was a sorcerer. He got saved when Philip was preaching in Samaria and baptized and began to follow the apostles. And when he saw Peter and John beginning to lay hands on the new believers and they got filled with the Holy Spirit, the Bible says that he desired that power and offered to pay the money to get that power. And they turned around and rebuked him in Acts chapter 8 and said, Satan has filled your heart and you need to repent. It's not possible for Satan to fill the heart of a believer. We have a clear picture in Acts chapter 8 of someone who was saved and on their way to heaven, clearly backsliding, losing their salvation. And they said, repent for Satan's filled your heart. You can go through the New Testament. Paul, who said in 1 Corinthians 9, 27, he said on a daily basis, I put my body under or under subjections, what he was saying, so that after having preached to other people, I might not become a castaway, the King James says, or a reprobate or disqualified, one translation says. So throughout the New Testament, I mean, if sin didn't matter, then why, with the exception of the Ephesians, did Paul write back to every single church in the New Testament and warn them to stop living in sin. He was so harsh on that point with the the church in Greece, the Corinthian church, that he said, you've got people in your church that claim to be Christians and continue living in sin, and it's proof that they are not who they say they are. So eject them from the church and turn them over to Satan for the destruction of their soul. I mean, that's heavy duty. I mean, where was Paul's grace teaching on that one? Here's a person, you know, and we know that the, the Corinthian church was an immature baby Christian type of church, because when you read what he said to them in first Corinthians chapter three, verses one and two, he basically tells them, I wish that I could give you the meat of the word, but you are infants in Christ. And I have to give you the milk of the word because you're not spiritual, you're carnal. And so he's dealing with these carnal, immature Christians who, you know, you'd think that because they were young in Christ, that Paul would have 
uh, extended them even more grace, but he writes back to them harshly in both letters and explains to them the importance of living holy and doing what the word of God says. And he, after giving, you know, obviously they'd warn the man. He said, if he's not listening, then throw him out of the church and turn him over to Satan for the destruction of his soul. This is all through the New Testament. In the book of Titus, by the way, Paul finishes the the letter to Titus by saying, if there are people who are stirring up divisions in the church, stirring up divisions among the believers, he said, warn them once and twice, and after that, have nothing more to do with them. Cut them off. Don't even, he said, don't even eat with such people. Don't even eat with such people. I mean, where's the grace on that one? Your deeds or your actions continue to matter greatly after you're saved. Grace does not cancel out your responsibilities or your actions once you become a believer. In fact, go to the book of Revelation and you'll find out that Jesus himself appeared to the churches and 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 in particular spoke to one church, Revelation 2 and 3. You can read it for yourself. Appears to one church and says that he said, I've been looking at your deeds. I know your deeds or your actions and you don't love me like you once did. And he said, if you don't return uh, to your first love or the way that you used to love me, I will come and personally remove your candlestick from among the churches. He's, he's telling them, I'll remove you. I will remove, I will remove you. Jesus, Jesus taught in John chapter 15. He said, I'm the true vine, you are the branches. And he said, if you abide in me and my words abide in you, you can ask what you will and it shall be done. But he goes on to say, if I find people who are not producing fruit, then I will cut them off or sever them from the vine and throw them into a pile to be burned. Interesting that he's saying that it's our responsibility to produce fruits of righteousness. And so he said, if I, if I see people who are connected to me, that's talking about, obviously that's talking about Christianity. You can't be connected to Christ without the covenant of Christianity. He said, if you are connected to me and I see that you're consistently not producing fruit, I will cut you off and throw you in a pile to be burned. Jesus said that. Your actions matter. You have a responsibility to obey the mighty word of God. And if you live a life where you think grace means that your uh, current disobedience to the word of God doesn't mean anything, because literally people that believe like that, they'll say stuff like this. Well, you know, Jesus' sacrifice is eternal. And do you think he failed in the way that he sacrificed for you? And do you think that, you know, you have to keep on over and over, you know, putting that salvation into practice? No, his blood's an eternal sacrifice that's always before the throne of God. And God looks at you through the blood of Jesus and your actions don't matter. It's not true. You know, Jesus did not say that to the churches in Revelation. He didn't say, you know, I know that you're not living like you used to live, but don't worry because I'm looking at you through the filter of my own blood and it's not about you. It's about me. It's about what I did. It's not about what you're doing. No, he didn't say that. He said, I know what you're doing. And if you keep doing it and don't return to your first love, I'll remove you personally. There is a serious responsibility for every one of us 
to obey the mighty word of God. You know, the Bible says even in the New Testament, God speaks to his people and says, be perfect even as I am perfect. That's insane. You know, I heard somebody recently, don't strive to be perfect, just strive to be better. No, that's not what the Bible teaches. The Bible teaches be perfect even as I am perfect. Isn't it interesting to you that even before Jesus died on the cross, he healed a man who was crippled, told him to take up his bed and walk and leave. And he said, now go and sin no more or a worse thing will come upon you. He told him, that man, leave here and don't sin again for the rest of your life. That was before he shed his blood and gave that man the ability to be a new creation. Can you imagine? But see what God commands, he equips you to do. So if he tells you to do something, he also gives you the empowerment, which is what grace really is, an empowerment. It's not a covering. It's not a cover up. It's an empowerment. And when he told that man, uh, leave and don't sin anymore, he just empowered him to live holy for the rest of his life, even though he didn't have the blood of Jesus yet covering his life and, and, and removing his sins. So understand that Jesus even had that expectation before he went to the cross. And it's today, how much more is it his expectation for us? In fact, you know the scripture that I always quote on the podcast, John 14, 21, uh, Jesus taught very clearly the person who has his commandments and obeys them is the one who loves him. And he said, because they love me, my father will love him and I will love him and I will manifest myself to him. So number one, grace means my sins no longer matter. That's completely incorrect. And it's dangerous to your life in Christ. The Bible says that those that endure to the end will be saved endurance is your responsibility, your obedience to the word of God, putting your flesh under and obeying the word of God. In fact, let me recommend a great book to everybody listening to the podcast today. Dr. Michael Brown wrote a phenomenal book on the subject of this false teaching of hyper grace that's been going through the body of Christ. And it's actually entitled hyper grace, hyper grace. It's a yellow book. Um, I believe it has black writing on the front. So the whole book is yellow. So if you're getting the ebook or you're going to the, looking on Amazon, it, you'll see it. Dr. Michael Brown, Hyper Grace. I recommend every person listening to my podcast read that book. It's one of the best books I've read in the last five years, and it will blow your hair back. You'll love that book. I'm telling you. Number two, let's move on to the next one. I hear this all the time. Second deadly belief that's killing your Christianity. Well, brother, sometimes God uses sickness to test us. Sometimes God uses sickness to make us stronger believers. That is such a demonic thought process. That is so far from the truth, it's unbelievable. First of all, just think about it logically. God is not a child abuser. In fact, if you read what Jesus said about the nature of God in Matthew chapter 7, he said, you have a heavenly father who's much better than earthly fathers. And he began to use the, you know, the correlation to gift giving. And he said, you know, how many of you, if your children ask you for bread, do you give them a stone? And if they ask you for fish, do you give them a serpent? No. He said, you uh, you imperfect or earthly fathers, you sinful fathers, you know how to give good gifts to your children. How much more does your heavenly father know how to give good gifts 
to them that ask him. So Jesus is trying to show that as much as even people on the earth love their children, people that aren't even perfect, he's saying, how much more does your heavenly father know how to give good gifts? And James echoes that in his book. He said this, every good gift and every perfect gift comes down from the father above. Sickness and disease are not good or perfect gifts. In fact, God sent Jesus Christ to be tortured and killed for the specific purpose of redeeming you from sin and redeeming you from sickness and redeeming you from poverty. Bible's clear on that on that fact. In fact, did you know that unless it was God's desire for Christ to eradicate sickness for the believer, there was no point in Jesus taking stripes on his back. Did you know that the stripes Jesus took on his back had nothing to do with your salvation? He didn't need to take 39 stripes for you to be saved. It was his act of redemption on the cross that brought salvation. But his the Bible is very clear that the only reason he took stripes upon his back Isaiah prophesied it, and, for, and then Peter looks back to that prophecy in 1 Peter 2.24 and, and says, by whose stripes you were healed. The only reason Jesus made a pit stop at the whipping post was so that you could have perfect healing from heaven in your physical body. This thought that God uses sickness or allows sickness to come test his children, make them stronger believers, is so demonic And let me show you why, because the Bible also says in the book of James that a double-minded man is unstable in all of his or her ways. Do not let that person think that they will receive anything from the Lord. So if the devil can just get you to the place where you don't know whether or not it's God's will for you to be healed from the thing you're dealing with, then he's already got you beat because now he's got you in a double-minded position because you're unsure is healing for me or is it not for me? Is, Is this something that I should be believing God for or did he put this in my life to test me? See, that kind of a thought process is so evil because it takes you out of what God has promised is yours. And see, if you see, don't allow yourself ever, don't let any believer or any leader ever try to convince you that sickness is sometimes used by God as a punishment or used by God as a test or used by God uh, to make you stronger. It is none of those things. How foolish would God be if he sent his only son to the earth for the purpose of being tortured to remove the burden and penalty of sickness from your life only to then put it back on you again? That's so foolish. Sickness is of the devil. Sickness and disease are demonic things. They originated from sin and they are evil. That's why Jesus, you look through the ministry of Jesus in the gospels. I I challenge you to look through the gospels and find me one place, just one, where Jesus encounters a sick person who wants to be healed. And Jesus says to that person, well, you know, I can't really pray for you because my father put this on you 
to make you a, a stronger believer, to make you rely more fully upon him. So it wouldn't be right for me to pray for you because God's the one who ordained this in your life. Never. Any person in the gospels who Jesus came into contact with who was sick or diseased, he treated that sickness and that disease like an enemy and destroyed it by the power of his spirit. Sickness is a work of the devil. And the Bible says in 1 John chapter 3 and verse 8 that the Son of God was made manifest that he might destroy the works of the devil. Every evil thing that Satan used. In fact, if you go back, I mean, it's not hard to see this in the Bible. I don't know where people, I, I'm just, I'm convinced people don't read the Bible. I, I mean, I am at this point in my life. Even, I'm talking about even preachers. And I know the statistics, the statistics show it now, but it just blows my mind that they're teaching things they've never even read. But you can go back to the Old Testament. Go back to what God said to Israel through Moses in Deuteronomy 28. And he said, uh, and you read 15, verse 15, through the end of the chapter when he lists all the curses of the law. Sickness was a massive part of the curse of the law. How did the curse come on people? For being disobedient to God's commands for sin. So he said, if you live in sin, which is just disobedience to God's commands, he said, then it'll cause sickness to come upon you and it'll cause disease to come upon you. And he goes on to say, and I believe it's Deuteronomy 28, 61. He says, every disease and every sickness, even the ones not listed in this book of the law will come upon you. So he even made provision for diseases and sicknesses that would be discovered later on throughout you know, the future, he said, these will also come upon you when you live in sin and disobey my word. The powerful thing about that verse of scripture is it also now reverses because of redemption. And now it doesn't matter if those sicknesses or diseases were listed in the Bible or not because of the blood of Jesus, you are already redeemed from the curse, meaning every sickness and any disease that could ever be discovered you're already redeemed from that because of the blood of Jesus and the stripes that he took upon his back. God will never, ever, ever use sickness to test you, to make you stronger, or to punish you. Sickness is of the devil and healing is from God. Let me just say this. If sickness was of God, then there would have been examples in the life of Christ, who, by the way, was a perfect mirror of God's nature on the earth. There would have been examples in the gospels of Jesus, instead of healing people, sometimes he would have put sickness on people, if that's God's will. If God does that sometimes to make people fully rely on him, you would have seen examples of Christ putting sickness on some people in the New Testament. You won't find it one time because sickness is of the devil, it's demonic, it's evil, it's destructive, and it and it's literally working in opposition to what Jesus died to purchase for you. Number three, the third deadly belief that is killing your Christianity is when you hear people say this, well, brother, money, you know what the Bible says, money's the root of all evil. Money is the root of all evil. The devil's got people misquoting verses. <laughs> it's insane. 
Well, brother, money's the root of all evil. Bible doesn't say that anywhere. Not one scripture says that. The Bible says the love of money is the root of all evil. Money's not evil. Money's an inanimate object. You know, an inanimate object cannot be evil. It's like, it's like, brother, I walked past that toaster the other day and I can tell you, I felt a demonic spirit all over that toaster. And it was confirmed later in the day when I put my bagel in and it came up burnt. And I said, I knew there's a demon in that toaster. An inanimate object can't be evil. Money's not evil. It's the love of money that's evil. In fact, if money was evil, then why did God make Abraham very rich? Why did, make, why did God make Isaac so rich that the king of the nation where he was living asked him to please leave the nation because you've become too powerful, too mighty for us? Why did God make Jacob wealthy? Why in the world? Did God make Moses very great in the land of Egypt? I mean, he the only person in Egypt greater than Moses was Pharaoh. Think about that. Moses, there was no one greater, the Bible says. You go on. Why did God make David extremely wealthy? Did you know that when David gave an offering to build the temple, and it inspired his elders to give as well from their own personal accounts, not from the nation's treasury, from their own personal accounts. I, I did the statistics on this once by looking up the value of their gold and silver. David and his elders gave one offering of over $6 billion in just gold and silver. Plus, they gave other things, precious metals, precious stones that can't be calculated, timber, six billion dollars in one offering. You can't do that if you're a pauper. David was wealthy. Solomon was so wealthy that a queen from the east came to check him out, didn't even believe how wealthy he was, thought she was going to show him what wealth really looked like. And the Bible says when she showed up, the queen of Sheba, she began to take a look at his servants she hadn't even got in all the way to the place where he lived yet. She was looking at the outer courts and look at how the servants lived, saw all of his wealth, and it was too much. It overtook her, and the Bible says she fainted. That's how wealthy Solomon was. You go on through the scripture. Why, if money is evil, why did God promise to make his people wealthy? Did you know the Bible says in 2 Corinthians chapter 8 and verse 9, that though Jesus was rich, for your sakes he became poor, that through his poverty he could make you rich. And study it for yourself. The word rich in 2 Corinthians 8, 9 is the word plutos or pluteo in the Greek. It doesn't mean spiritually rich. It means actual natural wealth and riches. In fact, Paul, when he wrote to the Corinthians, is actually taking an offering for the Macedonian church through that passage. He's talking about actual money to be given. He's talking about how God will bless you financially. If you go to Revelation chapter 5 and verse 12, there are seven things Jesus died for, according to Scripture. One of them is riches and wealth. In Revelation 5.12, read it for yourself. Worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wisdom and riches, wealth. Think about that. Jesus died 
to receive wealth so that he could give it to you in redemption so that you could be wealthy and rich. That's not an evil thing. It's a blessing. Say, so, well, that doesn't mean anything. There's there's sinners that are rich. Yeah, but you have to understand the context. The Bible says in Proverbs 10, 22, the blessing of the Lord makes rich, but adds no sorrow. So when you can you can get riches other ways, but it's accompanied by sorrow. That's why you have celebrities that are so wealthy. I mean, flying around on their own private planes. But can't, but you know, they can't stay off of drugs. That's why they commit suicide. That's why they overdose on drugs. That's why they, you know, there's there's a comedian that I could tell you about right now, who was making serious money every appearance he did, selling out shows, and took a butcher knife and stabbed himself in the chest nine times to commit suicide and still didn't die. Had to go to rehab. To take a knife and stab yourself in the chest nine times, you are tormented, my friend. You, 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 look, you look through all these celebrities that can't stay out of rehab. They can't, you know, they can't even enjoy the blessing that's in their life. Because yes, they have money, but there's sorrow attached to it. The Bible says when the blessing of the Lord comes upon you, it'll make you rich and add no sorrow unto it. Money's not evil. It's the love of money that's the root of all evil. God wants you to be blessed. Notice the first three things I dealt with in this in the podcast today. Number one, these are the three main parts of redemption. Number one, sin or righteousness, holiness. Number two, sickness or healing. And number three, poverty and lack or blessing and wealth. The three main things Jesus died for, to save you from sin, to heal you of sickness, and to take you out of poverty and lack and put you into the wealth and blessing and riches of the covenant that he's established for your life. Number four, let's go on. The fourth deadly belief that's killing your Christianity. Well, Brother Ted, it's not important whether or not I go to church as long as I love the Lord. It's not important, you know. It's, it's, you know, I'm, I'm more spiritual. I'm not really religious. I'm spiritual. And there's people that want to quote unquote, be a Christian without actually going to church. And they'll give you all kinds of excuses as to why they don't go to church. Well, you know, I, I was hurt in church. You know, I, I was hurt. I, I, I was hurt in church. That's why I don't go anymore. You know, I'm thinking about this because what I have to do in a couple of hours, I've been hurt in the dentist's office, but I still go. Because you have to go. You got, you got to go. I've been hurt plenty of times in the dentist's office. I was hurt the last time I was there. They hurt me. They hurt me, podcast family. But you still got to go to the dentist. I was hurt in church. It's not an excuse to disobey the word of God. Well, I don't go to church because, you know, there's hypocrites there. Oh, wow. You know, there's hypocrites at Disney World. (laughs) There's hypocrites at the bar. There's hypocrites at the hibachi restaurant. Well, you know, brother, I'm going to be honest with you. I don't go to hibachi anymore. I used to go, but tell you what, there's a lot of hypocrites in those Japanese restaurants. I saw people in there that I know had sworn to be on keto, and they were sucking back fried rice. 
like it was their last meal before the electric chair. There's hypocrites everywhere you go. It's funny. I, it was it was funny answer that I heard someone give one time because a guy was making that excuse as to why he doesn't go to church anymore. Said, well, you know, I don't go to church because, you know, those hypocrites have gotten between me and God. And the preacher said, oh, is that true? They've gotten between you and God? Yeah, brother. They're standing between me and the Lord, those hypocrites. He said, if that's true, the hypocrites are closer to God than you are. There's hypocrites everywhere. You know, you can allow yourself to be hurt anywhere. But the bottom line is the word of God commands us to assemble at church. Hebrews chapter 10 and verse 25, the Bible says, do not forsake the assembling of yourselves together. Don't stop going, getting together in the name of the Lord. He said, as is the custom of some, but as you see the day of the Lord approaching, gather all the more, not less and less, more and more. Man, I don't know what, you know, I wish our, you know, I, I, I see these churches across the country. They have these huge buildings. They pay all these mortgage payments to have a church building and they meet for an hour on Sunday morning. I don't get it. Nothing through the week. You know, it's like come for our one hour Sunday morning service. You know, we have great coffee and muffins and and they never see each other again until the next Sunday morning. What a waste of money and time. You know, people want to get out of church. They're trying to shorten services and go less and less. We don't need less and less. We need more and more. Turn on the news. Take a look at what's going on in this nation and other nations and and explain to me how you think that we need less of God's presence than we had in the 60s and 70s and 50s. So, you know, it's a different day now. Let me tell you something. People say it's a different day, but it's the same problems that are happening around the world and they're increasing. And the Bible says, as you see the day of the Lord approaching, let me tell you, you can see clearly the day of the Lord approaching right now. There are signs of the second coming of Christ taking place in the earth right now. The second coming, not the rapture. There are no signs for the rapture. It's a signless coming. We're seeing signs for the second coming of Christ, which means that's how much closer we are to the rapture. So let me ask you, if you can clearly see the day of the Lord approaching, you know, why are many people not gathering more and more as the Bible commands in Hebrews 10, 25? It's a plot of the devil. See, because church is a place God created for the equipping and perfecting of the saints. And the devil does not want saints to be equipped with the power of the Holy Ghost and the mighty word of God in their spirit so that he can keep them ineffective and they won't accomplish their purpose. But I don't know. I'm just telling you, I don't want to go to church less and less. I want to go to church more and more, not because I'm a preacher, because I'm a Christian. I'm a Christian. When I was dating Carolyn, I didn't like try to find out how quickly I could get away from her. Yeah, I've got this all planned out. You know, I love her with my whole heart, I've given my whole life to her, but uh, I'm going to try to meet with her about for an hour once a week. You know, we just, Justin, no, no, I wasn't trying to get less and less time with her. I was trying to get more and more time until like, you know, a restraining order had to be put out against me, which, you know, that didn't actually happen, but very well could have, you know what I'm saying? I, I'm not, I wasn't trying, I wasn't trying to get away from Carolyn. I loved her with my whole heart. Still do. You know, I want to be around her same. I, I feel the same way about God and his presence. 
I'm not trying to see how quick I can get out of church. I can't, I can't imagine living that kind of life where I sit on the, sit in the pew and I have to glance at my watch or phone every 30 minutes to see what time it is and hoping somebody will hurry up and be done. Just leave. Just don't go to church at all. Just stop being a Christian if you're going to be a bum about it. Either get on fire or get out. That's how I, I feel that way now. I'm like, you know, and I can say that in this podcast context because we're all family. And by the way, you asked, you brought it up, so. You know, but I mean, you know, get on fire. That's what God said. He said in in Revelation chapter three, I wish you were hot or cold, but because you're lukewarm, I will vomit you out of my mouth. I'll vomit you. I remember the first time I ever preached that message. I was like 19. I preached to a public school in a Bible club that had about 600 or 700 students in it. And I preached, don't make God vomit. And I said, if you're going to live for the world, if you're going to live in sin, then go all out because that's what God wants. He would rather you be completely cold. I remember I told him this. I was like, if you're going to sleep around, sleep with as many as people, people as you can. If you're going to do drugs, do as many drugs as you can. If you're going to drink, get alcohol poisoning. If you're going to smoke, smoke until you're, you know, smoke until they have to put one of those things in your throat and you talk like a robot. And, you know, the teachers were getting nervous that we're like, oh, I don't know if he should basically... And I said, but on the other side of that, if you're going to live for God, live all the way for God. Don't do this thing where you like show up to youth group, show up to church on Sunday, and you have like a, a church face on. You know, don't be fake. Either be all the way in or get out. And that's what God said in Revelation 3.16. He wants people hot or cold. And we need to, we, it's time for people to get hot. And, you know, it is important whether you go to church. So, well, as long as I love the Lord, he knows He knows my heart. I do church from home. That's not in the Bible. Don't forsake the assembling of yourselves together. It's important to be in church, and not just any church, an on-fire, Holy Ghost-filled, full gospel church that'll preach the full gospel, or what Paul called the whole counsel of God. What does that mean? They don't just preach that Jesus will save you. They preach that he'll heal you. They preach that he'll prosper you. They'll preach that he'll deliver you. That he'll give you miracles in your life. The whole council, everything the Bible teaches for a New Testament believer. It's important to be in a church like that. Number five, let's jump into that. Fifth one, well, brother, God knows what I need and he'll bless me in his timing. That's the fifth deadly belief that kills your Christianity. Well, brother, God knows my needs and he'll bless me when he sees fit in his timing. Doesn't work like that. Doesn't work like that. You have to provoke God's blessing with your actions of obedience. God does not ever randomly bless people, ever. You know, it's not a mystery why God's favor comes on people. Yeah, that's what, that's one of the things that used to tick me off about listening to people. <laughs> I don't know what's happening. I'm getting more and more free on, on the old podcast, but it's all right because this is my format and I'll say whatever I want. So just you put, you keep those earbuds in because I'm going to say it how I feel it. Be so real. <laughs> I'm just telling you, it used to tick me off listening to, <laughs> listening to people preach about favor. 
Because you'd hear people preach about favor and you'd think to yourself like, wow, favor, how mystical is that? I hope one day I can find God's favor. It, it, it was like this like magic. It was like heavenly magic. You know, there's a faith. And you couldn't figure out why. It'd be like people preach on favor. Like, ooh, there's favor coming upon. Oh, I wish he'd prophesy favors coming upon me. It's like, like it was some mystery how favor comes on somebody. It's not a mystery. Favor's a calculated thing. Study the scripture. I mean, like, look at scriptures like this one where the Bible says, God resists the proud, but gives more grace or favor to the humble. So there's, there's, there's one way right there. Just by humbling yourself and being a meek and humble person instead of a pride, prideful and arrogant person, it attracts the favor of God. Favor is not a mystical and a thing and a mystery. It's, it's, you know, it's calculated. God's favor is never random. It's always purposeful. God releases his favor on people who obey his word and put it into action by faith. That's why I read that verse all the time in John 14, 21, because it's so key for people in the New Testament to know that Jesus said, you're not even qualified for my manifestations unless you obey my word. In one translation, he says, after he says, my father will love them and I will love them, he says, and I will reveal myself to people who obey my word. Another translation says, and I will manifest myself to people who obey my word. So you're not even qualified for the manifestations of God or the or the revelation of God unless you obey the word. It's not a mystery how favor comes on people. I mean, listen, just read with me. In fact, I'm going to turn there and, and read it to you. But Let's read Psalm 1. I mean, this, this is so clear and plain. Listen to what the Bible says. It says, Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the ungodly or stands in the path of sinners or sits in the seat of the scornful, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. He meditates on it day and night. That man will be like a tree planted by the rivers of water that brings forth fruit in every season. His leaves will never wither and he'll prosper in everything he does. That is a picture of favor. Well, how does the Bible say that it comes? Number one, you don't walk in the counsel of the ungodly or stand around with sinners or join in with mockers, but you delight in the law of the Lord. So (laughs) it's not like it's some mystery how favor comes. It's through obedience to the word of God. And people sit around and see, here's what happens. This is an excuse for laziness to come on people's lives as a believer. Well, God knows my needs, brother, and he'll just bless me in his timing. Not if you're not tithing and giving, he won't bless you. Not if you're not obeying his word. Not if you're not living holy. The Bible says he doesn't withhold any good thing from people who walk uprightly. Psalm 84, 11. Said to Job in Job 36, 11, if they'd only obey and serve me, they'd spend their days in prosperity and their years in pleasures. What was the prerequisite there? Obey and serve him. Isaiah 119, the Bible says, if you're willing and obedient, you'll eat the good of the land. So notice, God doesn't randomly bless people ever. 
He doesn't say, well, you know, I know your needs and in my own good timing, I'll come down and just drop a blessing on you. You won't even expect it. I'll slap you upside the head with a blessing you weren't even expecting, give you a concussion. No, it's not random. It's purposeful. It's calculated. It's cause and effect. It is you responding to his commands and him responding to your faith. The Bible says, without faith, it's impossible to please God. This is Hebrews eleven six, by the way. Without faith, it's impossible to believe God uh, to please God. For they that come to God must believe that He exists, and that He's a rewarder of them that diligently seek Him. He's looking for people who will diligently seek Him. In fact, the Bible says the eyes of the Lord are searching to and fro across the earth, looking for people whose hearts are loyal to him. And then on on those people's behalf, he'll show himself strong and mighty. Not on everyone's behalf, on, on the behalf of those whose hearts are loyal to him. And Jesus said the clearest picture that your heart's loyal to him is that you obey his word. Very clear. Number six, let's get into it. This is a huge one. I might be stepping on some toes It's all right. You need to hear this. It's very important because see, there's a generation on the line. There's a whole generation of young people on the line. Here's number six, the sixth deadly belief that kills Christianity. Well, you know, we let our kids skip church, you know, for events or sports because, you know, we don't want our kids to resent church later on. You know, I've had, I've actually had people say this to me. You know, we don't want our kids to grow up and resent church because it was the thing that held them back from basketball or travel baseball or football or gymnastics or whatever. So, you know, we we let them skip church all the time, especially during those, you know, the, the season that they play their sports and, you know, all that stuff. And this is what, and the problem is, see, here's, here's what the parents think. Well, I'm doing a good thing because they're, they're, you know, they're seeing that, you know, as they grow up, they'll more appreciate church because they'll see that I wasn't one of those hardcore parents that made them miss all their sports to come to church. And then they get up and say, man, I hate church. Church is the reason, you know, that I had to miss all my basketball practices and my travel baseball, blah, 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 blah. Let me tell you something. I was an athlete through my whole life. And I, I was the one I purposely, I, you know, I, my parents, uh, you know, trained me in such a way that I valued church so that I was the one who actually told my coaches, like you, you can call practices on Wednesdays. If you want, you can call practices on Sundays. If you want, you won't see me because I, I go to church on Wednesday nights, I go to church on Sundays. I actually had a coach tell me, he's like, if you skip Wednesday night practices, then every other practice you come to, you have to run 40 laps around the gym before practice even begins to make up for the time you're gone, which they're, by the way, they're not supposed to penalize you for your religious practices, you know, whatever they may be. But you know, that stuff happens all the time. I said, you know what? I'll take the laps because I value, and let me tell you something, I I didn't grow up thinking, like, I can't believe my life for Christ made me miss my basketball practices and my my travel games. I don't know if you guys notice, I'm not in the NBA today, I'm not in Major League Baseball, I'm in the house of God every night of my life, loving it. Have no resentments of my, you know, I couldn't go to prom because we're Christians and I never got to go to prom at my high school. Never got to go in there and put a corsage on. Stupid. I mean, like, 
It's, it's insane. And then people wonder, because let me show you the problem, is that when kids grow up, what you've really taught them is not that you were, what a great parent. They allowed me to, you know, skip church all the time to play sports and do events and all this stuff. No, what you've really taught them is church is not that important. And other things, and I don't care what you put in, in the blank here. It could be, you know, we go to the lake house in the summer on Sundays. We don't go to church. And, you know, when it's the summertime, we're always out. And, you know, when we, you know, we go on vacation and we don't, we need a vacation from church. I've actually had people say that I need a vacation from church. I mean, like, I'm, dude, I don't, I, I'm telling you, I don't even know how to respond to people anymore. People telling me they need a vacation from church. Like, oh, sorry, it was such a, <laughs> sorry, it was such a burden for you to sit in a chair and listen to somebody speak. My Lord, we should try to get you reparations. Maybe, maybe there's some things, I'm, I'm, I'm just telling you, I've, I've, I've had it up to here. I know this is an audio podcast. You can't see where my hand is. It's above my head. I've had it up to here. I can't take it anymore with this ridiculousness. I need a vacation from church. Oh, sorry. It was so hard for you to sing a few songs and sit in a soft, cushioned, padded chair in air conditioning while somebody spoke for a couple of hours. Wow. Your life is so hard. Man, it's just, it's... uh, (laughs) I can't, and then these people are like, no, I'm sold out for Jesus. Brother, I love the Lord. They can't even sit in a, a church service without going to the bathroom 13 times, checking their Instagram feed 39 times, checking their watch 20 times. I mean, it's like, if it's such a burden, I quite, are you even like serving the Lord? The Bible says you serve, we serve the Lord with gladness. You know, that's what I would do. Like if I was in a place where I couldn't stand being and I wanted to be out as quickly as I could. Well, brother, we let our kids, you know, they do their own thing. And you wonder, see, and it's crazy thing is, then people act like it's a mystery. Well, I don't know, why are kids leaving the church in massive numbers? Why why are we have why do we have kids that don't think church is important? Gee, I wonder why. I've got my hands stretched up high in the sky. Pick me. Ask me. I know why. Cuz we had a previous generation of people who taught them that that church is not as important as travel baseball and church isn't as important as going to, you know, gymnastics. It's like give me a break. Give me a break. And you wonder why why kids are leaving when it's time. It's because the parents have taught the kids church doesn't really mean anything. Church doesn't really mean anything. So as a result, what ends up taking place is that you can lose a generation in one generation. Doesn't take 30 generations for it to happen. It only takes one. That's what the Bible teaches. Happened in the Old Testament in the promised land. The Bible says, and the next generation rose up that did not know the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. It only takes one generation to lose a generation. That's why it's so vital for every single generation to stand up for the mighty power of the Holy Spirit in your home, with your kids, with your wife, with your husband. It's important to stand up for the things of God and make them a priority in your life. Finally, number seven, before we close and pray for you today, the seventh deadly belief that's killing your Christianity. You know, it's okay to live with my boyfriend slash girlfriend Uh, You know, because as long as the Lord knows that we're in love, you know, why do we need a piece of paper to, you know, to say we're in love? Why do we need a piece of paper, a marriage license or certificate, you know, to say that we fell in love and that we're going to be faithful to one, one another? Because 
Understand this. And when I say it's okay for me and my boyfriend or girlfriend to live live together, read in between the lines, sleep together. Because I want to tell you something. There's no boyfriend and girlfriend living together that aren't sleeping together. Well, we have we have separate bedrooms, you know. We no, you don't. Give me a break. You think we're all stupid? Do you think we're all dumb? You know, no, we we just moved in together because you know it's just better on the rent. Now, are you you think we're retarded? You know, we don't know what's going on behind the scenes. And people say that you know, well, you know, we're not actually. We just live together. We're not. We're not sleeping together. Oh, you're you're the one couple in history that moved in together that doesn't sleep together. Please. Oh, why do we? You know, why do we need a piece, a piece of paper? You know, it's it's all as long as we're in love. That's the most important thing. No, it's not actually. The most important thing is that you stand before God at an altar and come into covenant with the one you say you love, just in the same way you would if you were coming into covenant with God and becoming the bride of Christ. Marriage was not created by men. Marriage was instituted by God Himself. God's the one that did it. Wasn't some idea man came up with hundreds of years later after creation. It's something that God instituted from the beginning. He's the one that set the parameters. He's the one. You know, it was wrong. You know, throughout the Bible. That's why God, you know, covenant means something to God. It's important to God. You can't just come out <laughs> all the things I've read to you from the Bible from the in this podcast episode. Where, where Christ says, you know, stay connected to me, produce fruits of righteousness or I'll cut you off. He's talking about the covenant relationship he has with you. It's our responsibility to remain in the covenant by actions, you know, and if we don't, if we don't do it, then we have issues, you know, so it's, it's insane that, pro, that, that these things crop up in people's lives and they think, you know, it's okay to do things outside of the word of God just because, of, well, you know, the Lord knows my heart. The, you know, the Lord knows what I really, no, he doesn't, he doesn't, you know, yes, the Lord does know your heart, but your heart is what causes your actions to take place. The Bible says that it's out of the abundance of the heart that the mouth speaks. So it's not just your speaking. Jesus said that there's no, no one that has a filthy heart or what he was talking about, a rotten tree that can produce good fruit. He says a rotten tree produces rotten fruit and a good tree produces good fruit. So the actions you take are a direct result of what's inside you. Jesus was very clear on that point. It's important to obey the mighty word of God. And why, why am I listing these seven things? It's because it's rampant throughout our generation. To hear these things repeated over and over in church, I'll, I'll run through them quickly in case you didn't catch them all or didn't have time to write them down. Number one, grace means my sins no longer matter. Number two, sometimes God uses sickness to test me. Number three, money is the root of all evil. Number four, it's not important whether or not I go to church as long as I love the Lord. Number five, God knows what I need and he'll bless me in his own timing. Number six, well, we know we let our kids skip church for sports because we don't want them to resent church later on in life. And finally, it's all right to live or sleep with my boyfriend or girlfriend because as long as, you know, the Lord knows we're in love, you know, we don't need to get married. No, 
It's so important to know what the Bible says and obey the mighty word of God. Vital. We have got to obey the mighty word of God. I want to pray for you today and ask God to give you like never before a hunger and a desire to obey his word. And as you do, you'll see the blessings of God flow in your life supernaturally. That's how they come. That's how you provoke the favor of God in your life. Father, in the name of Jesus, I pray for every man, every woman listening to this episode today. I pray in the mighty name of Jesus that you would give them a fresh hunger and a desire to obey the word of God. And Lord, if we're going to obey it, we have to know what it says. So Lord, give them a hunger and a desire to read the word of God like they never have before. Lord, let us begin to devour the word daily with a steady routine to stay in the presence of God by the word of God. In Jesus' mighty name, we thank you and we give you praise. Amen. Listen, thank you guys for listening again today. I love you so much. I'm going to be back on Wednesday once again for another Worship Wednesday podcast. But don't forget until next time, goodness and mercy are following you for the rest of your life. We would love for you to join us in a live service. To find out when Ted Shuttlesworth Jr. will be near you, please visit our website at www.miracleword.com. Music